Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we like to think we're good at distinguishing real information from disinformation, fact from fiction. But according to Stanford education professor Sam Weinberg, we're really not, regardless of our age or political party. He says if the Internet is the information superhighway, none of us were given driver's manuals. So with wars raging and an election year upon us, we thought now's a good time for a reminder of all the ways we can be duped and a skill refresher on how to avoid it. When did you post or forward something that turned out to be false? Or how do you check the veracity of a story or video that's dropped in your feed? Tell us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all likely been there, seen an article shared on Facebook with an eye-catching headline and thought, ah, that can't be true, or watched a video on TikTok that wasn't quite right. Some of us might go out of our way to check its authenticity, but even then, how can we be sure those sources are accurate? Stanford education professor Sam Weinberg has co-authored a new book that he's calling A Manual for the Internet, all about navigating the information pitfalls we can encounter online. It's called Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions About What to Believe Online. And Sam joins me now. Professor Weinberg, welcome to Forum. Uh, Thank you so much, Amina. So we've been turning to the Internet for news and information for more than two decades. And it sounds like from your book, we're still pretty bad at differentiating between real and fake information. What has your research shown? Our research shows that that we're all pretty bad at this. Uh, For a long time, there was this mythology out there of the digital native that – our children were born with, you know, silicone appendages from their fingers. <laughs> and um, it was the belief that, you know, we, we, our, our eyes deceived us. We saw our children texting without looking at the phone and uh, talking to us at the dinner table and uploading all kinds of things to Instagram. And we inferred from that be, that because they know how to use digital devices – they possess the sophistication to discern the information that those the information that comes out of those devices and our research shows that that's simply not true you can operate a device but to evaluate the information that device produces is an entirely different proposition yeah i was struck by the study that showed that more than 80% of kids have trouble differentiating between news and ads kids as you say who grew up only with an internet, right? Um, But uh, part of this, you say, is because we are actually still 
applying and teaching kids ways of managing information that were for a previous time? That's exactly right. Uh, Many of the things that we continue to teach and many of the things I think that adults carry around in their heads are... uh, They were pertinent when we accessed the internet with a dial-up modem. So I can give you an example, and it's an example that comes up over and over and over in our research. Uh, Our research is ethnographic. We 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 show people web pages. We put them online. We watch them. What we watch what they do. And one of the things that 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 happens over and over again, they'll come to a site they're unfamiliar with, and they will look up at the top of the URL because they've been taught to do that which is a good idea, and they'll see the name of an organization and the letters O-R-G. And they will make the assumption that, oh, it's an organization, and often they will say it is nonprofit. Well, this is something that is now used by bad actors. The, the, The O-R-G domain is a completely open domain. It has been since the inception of the internet uh, you and your goldfish can get uh, uh, Mina and, and Mina's goldfish.org <laughs> in about 15 minutes and $15. That's, that's basically what .org is. And it is used by bad actors. So, for instance, Stormfront, which is the, uh, the, one of the biggest neo-Nazi sites on the Internet, is, is storefront.org. So there, a lot of the things that students – now, no student was born thinking that, that .org was better than .com. So these are things that we have taught, and these things that we have taught are seriously outdated and are being exploited by people who want to pull the wool over our eyes. Mm. So we are transferring bad strategies <laughs> to children and using, continuing to use strategies that are no longer applicable. You've also talked about how emotion is a really big factor in how we process and assess information. And it sounds like we also haven't gotten much of a handle on that. Talk about how emotion works on us. Well, my colleague, uh, Mike Caulfield, has has really kind of uh, laid this out in very, very thoughtful ways. That, you know, we tend to think of emotion as bad because, um, well, it upsets us. It makes us immediately press share. But if we start to think of emotion when we look at a particular post on our social media feed as a signal to stop and to ask ourselves, what is it that makes it compelling? And if we can make that brief pause and to try to define what it is that so unnerves us about us about it, it sets us up for a more, if you will, rational approach to a quick fact check of that particular item. So emotions emotions can be marshaled for good. They are not just uh, the, the qualities that, that steer us wrong. So use a strong reaction almost as a guide. Exactly, exactly. When, when we see something that so stirs us and immediately, in many ways, um, it bypasses our frontal cortex and, and just punches us in our solar plexus. We're, we're, we're reacting. And in, in that reaction, we want to do something. We want to share. We want to forward it. We want to give it to send it to all, all, of our, all of the people who follow us on whatever social media feed we use. And if we can just pause for a second and stop, you know, the old take a few deep breaths and to kind of calm yourself and interrogate yourself for a second and say, what 
is it that is so unnerving me here? That will set you up for a more thoughtful search to verify, which is the name of our book, to verify whether it is actually something that is fabricated or something that might have legs or something that we don't yet know. And the best, the best uh, action in that case is simply to wait, to have a bit of restraint rather than to send something that, that turns out to be false and to be essentially a digital polluter. Can you talk about why corrections to things that are false tend to get far less attention than the original inaccurate or incorrect post? You you give the example very early on in your book about, you know, the Van Gogh sunflower controversy and and then the the correction or the the shifting of the story to provide more context and more accurate information about what really happened and, and the comparison between the two in terms of attention. Well, if you are, if you are a devotee of Van Gogh and you have a, a refrigerator magnet of the sunflowers on your refrigerator and you wake up in the morning and you see a three-second video of it being defiled and... I mean, you're crushed. The, there was one of the, pe- the the first people who reacted who said to the, that the uh, climate activists who, who uh, perpetrated this act, they should have their ears cut off. And again, speaking of uh, in concert with, what, with Van Gogh's own act to himself, you know, it's the type of thing that had they waited or and, and what we're talking about waiting is not waiting hours waiting four or five minutes or even doing a simple search. So you see a short video. And again, this is a a, a kind of rule of the internet. The shorter a video is, the greater the, the probability that context has been left out. So you see a four or five second video. You don't see that uh, actually that, it, that, that the, uh, the painting was behind a glass scene. You don't see uh, uh, it, it easily being cleaned up. But, you know, I, I think we all, I, myself included, and I imagine you as well, when, when something precious to us is destroyed or hurt, um, we have a deep emotional reaction. And what, when, if we're seeing it in real life, it's one thing. But the Internet is a hall of mirrors. And so there's so much manipulation at this point that when we see something that's so so shakes us. The first reaction is to take a deep breath and then to ask ourselves, how do we know that what we're looking at is really something that we're looking at because of the manipulation? Rather than is it true or false, just the simple question of, do I really know what I'm looking at? And if you wait and you Google and you wait for a few minutes, pretty soon more context will come. And if you can do that, it saves many of us an awful lot of embarrassment. It feels like you're also alluding to, I think, to some extent, just the incredible way that information has been affecting our ability to manage and navigate the false information that's been online about the Israel-Hamas war. You wrote about videos, actually, that you call cheap fakes. Can you can you tell us about those? Yes. The, you know, there's... What's captured the headlines of late are deep fakes, the, the, the way the generative AI is able to create images and to actually 
put people's voices into their mouths. And these are sophisticated techniques that um, are being used. Um, they, they demand some technical expertise to create. But what's driving the, the, the volume of misinformation that we see, particularly visual disinformation on, on the Internet of late, is not, is not deep fakes. They are cheap fakes. And what, what we mean by cheap fakes are taking old footage and recasting it with a, a new caption, a new frame. So something that ostensibly is going on in the Middle East right now. An example that we used in one of the pieces that, we, that Mike and I wrote is uh, it was from Syria from four years ago um, to change the date, to change the frame, to uh, uh, edit the video so that you miss the context. These are kinds of things that uh, a, a technically savvy 10-year-old can do. Um, and any kind of partisan who wants to fill the Internet with uh, their particular view will take footage. Uh, it could be footage from the Ukraine and say that it is something that's going on in Gaza right now. And it can go viral. And many of these these videos, these cheap fakes have gone viral. And again, it goes back, uh, Mina, to, to what I was saying before. If you pause for a second and you do, for instance, a reverse image search on that video, or even if you you uh, Google that video and say, or look through the comments, um, odds are if it's gone viral, someone will find the original context of it. And your, your whole emotion and your whole being stirred really was for naught because essentially you've been had by a cheap fake. Hmm. We're talking with Sam Weinberg about how to navigate misinformation online, and we'll have more with him and you after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Sam Weinberg this hour, professor at Stanford University and founder of the Stanford History Education Group, whose new book, Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Decisions, Better Decisions, about what to believe online, was co-authored by Mike Caulfield as well. And it's all about how to do just that, navigate tremendous misinformation online and with an election year upon us, with wars raging right now, we've invited Sam Weinberg to tell us more about what he's learned through his years of research on this issue. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. What were some hoaxes, maybe pieces of information that you, misinformation that you fell for or reshared? 
How do you check the veracity of a story or video that's been dropped into your feed? What are some tips you could share or methods that you have for interpreting what you are seeing as real or fake? You can tell us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our, on our social channels at KQED Forum. You know, just before the break, Sam, you were talking about how if you just spend a minute maybe going into the comments and seeing somebody who's either challenged um, a video or image or found the source of it, you're kind of describing using the web, you know, sort of against itself or to check itself. Is that one of the strategies? It absolutely is. In fact, I would say it's the cardinal strategy of the book. Mm. Um, it's something that we, you know, when we first started this work in, in 2016, we began with middle school st- students, high school students, and uh, and college students. And much to our surprise, because we, we entered in with the same kind of digital native belief that, that young people who've grown up with the internet would do quite well, and we were we were we were frankly shocked. And um, one of the questions we asked ourselves was, who who does this well? And uh, and we got the idea that 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 maybe people who do this for a living, people who sit in front of a computer all day long and have to make quick decisions, um, are the people we should look at. And so. I was sitting in my office and I I wrote just out of the clear blue sky a bunch of very cheesy emails to the most famous publications uh, uh, in the United States between New York City and and Washington, D.C. And I said, hi, I'm a Stanford professor. I'd like to come to your office and open up your laptop and give you a bunch of exercises and make you sign a bunch of uh, uh, release forms from Stanford. Um, And I just expected I would hear nothing. And and and. Mina, it was one of the most unusual experiences in my life. Two A one, it was get here quickly. We need your help. People in our newsroom are doing really silly things. Come and get this word out. So we went and got on a plane and went to New York City and, and Washington D.C. I can't tell you the places, but if you were to guess, you'd be right. And one of the things that we we saw was exactly the question that you asked me. Um, I'll give you a concrete example. We w- one of our exercises was. Um, your son or daughter is being bullied in school, and you want to be acquainted with best practices. And we opened up. We said, here's a website, uh, the American College of Pediatricians. Um, you have five minutes to do anything you normally would do uh, to see if it's a, a, a trustworthy site. Stay on it. Press on links. Leave it. Google. Go Anything as if we're not there. And we recorded their screens. And here's, here's an interesting thing. We also interviewed uh, academics at five different universities and a whole bunch of group of Stanford students. Those latter two groups, they relied on their intelligence. They were good readers. They stayed on the site. They saw it was a .org. They saw that it was uh, organized uh, with a kind of scientific abstracts. It had references at the bottom. And for the most part, they said, yeah, this is you know, just information. What the fact checkers did, 201, 100%, we published this research. Um, they, they almost immediately left the page. They put the name of the organization in their browser and opened up a new tab. And many of them came, first of all, to Wikipedia, which immediately tells you something's not right. This group is not the major group of pediatricians in the United States. It's a small break-off group that broke off from the American Academy of Pediatrics over the issue of adoption by same-sex couples. So immediately you know this is a small splinter group of maybe three to 500 people that when you look more 
and you open up a few more tabs, within a minute, you see this is an organization that, for instance, uh, embraces reparative therapy for LGBT youth, which is outlawed in, I think, 14 states in every Canadian province. They, they, they uh, advocate corporal punishment. So very quickly, mm-hmm. by leaving a... I mean, it's interesting. By the, 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 the kind of paradoxical notion to learn about an unfamiliar website, do not spend time on it. Leave that website and engage in a practice that we call lateral reading, opening up multiple tabs, and exactly as you said it, use the internet to check the internet. So is that also what you mean, that that practice of immediately starting and checking things like URLs, checking information and sentences, is that what you mean by reading the web laterally as opposed to, you know, just like reading the piece top to bottom? (laughs) So uh, let, let, let's take an example. Uh, there's a, a website uh, that people can look up, the, the uh, ILSI.org, International Life Sciences Institute.org. They offer nutrition, organ- nutrition information. It is a beautiful website. Um, and what many people will do when we've done this task is they'll go to the About page, and the About page will announce that it's a nonpartisan a uh, uh, nonprofit organization uh, offering health ad- the best health advice for America. You'll go to its research tab. They have research studies. You'll go to their advisory board, and that yes, they do have academics at bona fide universities. If you spent 10, 15 minutes on the site, you'd think, wow. What lateral reading is, if you don't know what this, if you're not a nutritionist and you've, something across your feed has come from them, Spend 30 seconds finding out. When you Google them, you can even begin with Wikipedia or you can use, I can talk about it a little bit later, uh, the three dots that follow uh, Google's entries. Most people don't use those three dots. Um, you quickly find out that the Institute for Life, the, the International Life Science Institute, essentially is, is uh, funded by the big beverage industry, by PepsiCo, by by the sugar industry. And so rather than getting unbiased results, you're getting results that are filtered through corporate interests. And this is the way essentially that public policy is transacted on the internet. So unless you're already familiar with an organization, spending, it can be as short as 30 seconds, to kind of look into who they are. And the, the incredible thing about the internet is that there is a surfeit of sources. So spending time on a source that is a little bit dubious, given that our attention itself is limited, is actually a colossal waste of time. I am struck by how much you like Wikipedia, because it has not been something that I have gone to or thought of as a place to get reliable information. But you say that it is a site that actually, if we use it the way that you're describing, it accommodates that. It, in in fact, invites that way of critically using information on a site. Can you just explain why you're such a fan? Oh, I am a fan. And I think that people relate to Wikipedia. uh, They're relating to the Wikipedia of 2003, which was full of problems, full of misinformation. Um, but already in the, in the early aughts, in 2005, um, Nature magazine did a study, 
and they took 42 articles out of Wikipedia and uh, about science and compared them to 42 articles in what was at that time the gold standard Britannica. And yes, they found that on average, on a, in a scientific article, there were four mistakes in Wikipedia. But they also found that in Britannica, there was an average of three mistakes. And the thing about Wikipedia is that, and, and, and Wikipedia has vastly improved since 2005, this 2005 study, that those mistakes are very quickly corrected. So I, I'm going to, I'll make a, a provocative statement that hopefully, uh, that maybe a few listeners will kind of jump out of their seat and say, wait a second, this guy's off his rocker. That somebody who does not use Wikipedia in thinking about verifying information is like a carpenter who goes to her work site without a hammer. It is that essential. So let's, let me just talk about a few of the myths of, of, of Wikipedia. First, that um, it's filled with mistakes. Uh, well, it, it, any, any site that has, you know, it's the fifth most trafficked site on the internet. Yes, there are mistakes, and particularly about entries that nobody looks at. But the more trafficked an entry is, the less probably the less time that site will will the, the, uh, that that misinformation will stay on there. There are automated bots that that gobble up uh, uh, new entries by IP addresses that they don't recognize in thirty seconds. Uh, when a site is vandalized, it's about a thirty minute lag time, even less, before it's corrected. Um, the idea that anyone can change. Wikipedia. I hear the students say that, well, you can't trust it because anyone can change it. I defy any one of your listeners to go and try to change Donald Trump's page right now or Barack Obama's page right now. There are something like 15 to 17 different kinds of locks on Wikipedia pages that only high-level Wikipedians can change. So the more trafficked an entry is, the greater the probability that that information will be up to date. Now, here's the difference between Wikipedia and, for instance, uh, an entry that ChatGPT will give you. ChatGPT, you put it in, it'll, it will come up with something very convincing, but it won't tell you where, it, where this mashup of information comes from. Wikipedia has an amazing, amazing quality, which is when you want to see where it gets its information, things are footnoted. And so if you don't believe the main entry, go and look at the footnote. And if I can just say one more thing about this, for instance, the American College of, of, of Pediatricians. On that entry, if you look down to the bottom, there's actually an article by Francis S. Collins, who was the former director of the National Institutes of Health, who condemns the organization for misusing his research. And you can see the original letter. So you don't even have to rely on the Wikipedia entry. And this is what we saw fact checkers do. They would often skip the, 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 the main entry and go down to the footnotes to see if there were verified mm. sources they could trust, like something from the National Institutes of Health, in order to make a quick decision. So, yes, I am, I am a fan. I'm a fan not just out of personal proclivity. I'm a fan because I've watched the most highly skilled professionals who have to make quick decisions use Wikipedia as an indispensable tool in their toolbox. Well, let me go to calls that are coming in. Edie and Pacifica, you're with us. Uh, hello. Really great show. I um, wanted to ask the guest, guest about PragerU. Um, I have seen it on a friend used to post it, or he does still post it on Facebook. 
and it looks very compelling. They're quite long videos, and they're very, they're truthful in the beginning, and they kind of pull you in, and then by the end, they're just horribly, it's just propaganda. And I reached out to my friend, and I said, please, can you not, these are propaganda. I gave him all the research I had done, and he continued to, to put them up. Uh, and this was a college professor, so it was really fascinating to me that he he just didn't get it. Mm. Uh, Edie, thanks. Pogger, you? Sam Weinberg? Um, again, they, they, they uh, you know, they believe in a, a kind of principle of something's worth stating, it's worth overstating. And yes, they, I think they, they often will exceed the factual basis on the claims that they make. But again, you know, this is, this is all, you know, we can, we can, we can find sites on the left as well that, that, that wildly overstate uh, the meaning of facts and bring interpretations to them that aren't warranted. I think that whenever we see something on the Internet and it makes a claim and we, we know that it comes from a partisan source, our first reaction shouldn't be, well, it's, uh, it's automatically f- uh, false because I don't like the source. It's incumbent upon us to check out that source and to see the kind of evidence on which it's based. I mean, I, I wish I could say that, you know, this is just a problem on 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 the right and its excesses. And yes, we've got QAnon on the right and we've got, you know, some really, really strange things. But there's this is this is a problem that goes across the political spectrum. Um, we have a couple of listeners. Noel on Discord writes, we just want to reinforce our beliefs and we get a rush from posting on social media. And Jim on Discord writes, how much does affiliation based on values color perception of accuracy? For example, how much more are those opposed to immigration likely to believe inaccurate statements from figures holding similar views? How much more are those opposed to income inequality likely to question the statements of billionaires who want to lower their taxes further? So it's a little bit of values or I, I think even confirmation bias in terms of what people are believing to be true, how do we check that? Oh my goodness, that's that's the, that's the big question, right? Um, confirmation bias I, and motivated reasoning, I think, has been with the human species since uh, I think since Cain killed Abel, right, and was asked by the Lord, you know, why did it? We've been dealing with you know people who are so set in their beliefs that they will go to any source, not in order to check their beliefs, but to find confirmation for what they already believe. And so, yes, that uncle who was at Thanksgiving, who is insisting that the election was stolen, um, I I don't have a lot of advice for you, mm. other than patience and um, maybe buying our book and hoping that he, you know, something might crack. But this is... These, this is part of the human condition. The focus of, of our book is really not the QAnon believer. The focus of our, of our book is it's, it's meant to be a kind of driver's manual for what we call the searcher of goodwill. Mm-hmm. The person who really doesn't know whether ivermectin is an effective antidote to COVID. The person who sees that their municipality um, is trying to enact a soda tax and feels that they're slighted because they like sugary beverages and are soda taxes effective. So the person who uses the internet really because they don't know, that's our audience, not the person who says um, Donald Trump was cheated out of this election, he deserves to be president, and I'm only going to find evidence that confirms that one, that one, 
um, Mina is a tough nut, nut to crack. I don't think there's any social scientist who has a uh, a, 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 a golden bullet or a, a pocket solution for that one. That's a long haul. But there are millions of people who are go to the internet and are confused by the deluge of the cacophony of mixed information, and they don't know how to make heads or tails out of it. Our book is a handbook with simple strategies. It doesn't mean you'll never, ever make a mistake, but it will take a significant bite out of the most common mistakes that people make. Well, Bill on Discord writes, verifying is indeed a valuable tool, but when one considers the amount of material to which we are exposed, each of which needs verification and the amount of time it takes to verify them, one realizes how impossible it is to try to do what needs to be done. Putting the responsibility on the individual may feel like achieving something valuable, but it really does nothing to solve the problem. Hmm. Well, I'm not a I'm not a, a big advocate of either or solutions. So, um, yes, we need to regulate the platforms that would help. We need to bring some stops on on some of the the, the hate speech and the the Islamophobia and and anti-Semitism on X. Uh, yes, I'm not a policy person. I am a social scientist who believes that ordinary people can make a few small changes in their life and in their on, on their in their lives online in order to increase the chances that they will come upon useful and valid information and they can do it in as little as 30 seconds. Yeah. So again, I, I'll, I'll go back to an example that I don't need to introduce a new example. You come across something, a, a study that says sugar is not the issue. The issue is... Um, the issue is not enough exercise. Sugar actually and the glucose actually provides energy. And it comes from a group that claims to be nonpartisan. If you Google the name of that group, you will very quickly see, wait a second, they're taking some money from PepsiCo. You do, though, have some strategies for the information overload that we can experience. And I want to get to those after the break. We're talking with Sam Weinberg. His new book is Verified. How to think straight, get duped less, and make better decisions about what to believe online. And we'll have more with him and you after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's a new state law that will go into effect next year requiring California schools to add media literacy to their curriculum. But our guest Sam Weinberg reminds us that it's not just young people that need to learn how to use the Internet and navigate information online. His new book is Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions About What to Believe Online. And you, our listeners, are joining the, com- joining the conversation with your questions and experiences around misinformation, how to deal with it, how to navigate it, how to identify it, and also strategies that you've used to navigate the information that we have access to on the internet. Let me go to caller Judy in San Jose. Judy, thanks for waiting. You're on. Hi, thank you very much, and thank you for the great work there. Sam, um, one of the things I was kind of disappointed in is a lot of the examples you're using are scientific ones. I'm a persuasion pro. I have scientific background. I spent three three years Uh, as a moderator of a COVID science group. And there's so many important things about scientific literacy, which is, you know, the hierarchy of scientific scientific journals, for instance, and knowledge, uh, which you can get on Wikipedia. Um, The fact that if you have a statistic, uh, you should have two things about that statistic, both the absolute and the relative, because an absolute I can sit there and say something doubles, it uh, increases by 200%. You know, is that, did we start from one or did we start from mm. a million? It makes a big difference. And the other one is averages, because on average, um, every human has one ovary. So, Judy, thanks, Sam. <laughs> what is your response to Judy? Um, well... Judy, it's wonderful that you have tremendous content knowledge. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of us, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take myself as an example. I'm not a, I'm not a virologist, right? And so um, I'm, somebody could pull the wool over my eyes. Somebody could say, here's a study showing, uh, well, I can uh, use an example. There's, a, there's a Robert Kennedy's Children's Defense Fund um, uh, or Children's Health Defense Site. It's, uh, it's a, an anti-vaxxer site. Uh, it, it, it made the claim um, that there were 5,162 deaths from the vaccines, and they quoted something called VAERS. Now, what is VAERS? VAERS is the Vaccination Adverse Reporting System, and it's actually run out of the CDC. So they're quoting government research. Now, if I don't kn- know a lot about this, and I'm saying, wow, and, and I check it, it actually is run, run out of the CDC, and, and, and it's 5,162 deaths by the vaccine? Well, without a great deal of background knowledge, I'm, I'm, I'm vulnerable to the kind of tricks that these sites play without background knowledge. And so if you, if you find out what VAERS is, you actually find out it is a system of reporting that anyone can enter and put in an entry. Uh, it's so much so that, the, that, that a few years ago, there was an anesthesiologist who was furious about the kind of openness of VAERS. And after a, a flu vaccination, he, he wrote uh, and, and put up on the site that he, uh, his, his uh, skin turned green and he became the, the Great Hulk. And only after they appealed to him, if the, if he, he said, if I hadn't agreed, the record would still be up there. So again, the the when you bring a great deal of expertise to a topic, you really don't need the strategies that we're talking about. But the modern citizen 
is called upon to make decisions about how to vote on charter schools, how to think about a soda tax, what to do about uh, whether ivermectin works, uh, what to think about a conflict in the Middle East. I mean, we are deluged by all of the issues that are that that demand a kind of response, and we can't be experts about everything. Yeah. So, how do we use the internet to become more thoughtful than we otherwise would be? In That's the scientific the realm, do you want to just take a second to talk about why you advise against assuming that a source is legitimate just because it claims it's peer-reviewed? Well, sure, because um, again, if I'm not an expert, you can. There are something like just in bio, just in biomedicine. There's something like 11,000 journals that publish uh, information. That is a mountain. And essentially, you will find a study that claims the wackiest thing in that haystack of studies. And in our book, we say, be careful of the single study. The example we use, for instance, is a study saying that if you play chess, you will increase your IQ. And there are studies like this, and they've been published in peer-reviewed journals. And we have a whole chapter called Reading the Room. When you are not an expert, don't rely on a single study. Find a literature review. Find a synthesis across a series of studies. And uh, in the case of chess, it turns out that there is a, a very good uh, kind of macro study of studies. I think it's 64 different studies that they looked at. And what playing chess helps you do is learn how to get better at playing chess. It does not create any kind of uh, elevation in general intelligence. But you can find a single study in the same thing in the medical realm. You can find single studies that, you know, oh, the, the wackiest claims. But that's really not how to make a decision, um, given, given how many journals there are and essentially the... The finding out whether that journal that publishes it is even a worthy venue of publication. Sam, could you talk about the strategy of critical ignoring? We were talking earlier just about the amount of information that people will try to verify and how overwhelming that can feel. So, yes, critical, critical ignoring is the complement to critical thinking. Now, we found one of the things that smart people do, and I, again, I, I, I mean no disrespect. And if, if really, if I hadn't gotten thrust into this area of research in 2015, I would be one of the people that I would be talking about. But it's only the good fortune of having watched experts that I've learned, uh, uh, picked up a few ways of, of how they do it. What, what critical thinkers do is they tend to assume that because they're good readers and they were smart and they got high test scores, they can come to a site, for instance, the American College of Pediatricians, and read this bullying at school never acceptable and saying, yeah, this, this makes sense, and look at the references, and that it seems tied to site. Now, they're, you know, they're, they're relying essentially on their own kind of expectations and their ability to read and comprehend text. Now, what critical ignoring is, is it recognizes that the principal quality of the internet is as an attention economy. The, the whole internet's business model is run on trying to keep our eyes glued to the screen. And so what that site does, 
whether we're talking about Robert Kennedy's Children's Health Defense, it wants you to stay on that site. It wants you to critically read because it will throw enough statistics at you that if you are not an expert in statistics and you're not familiar with all of the kind of nuances of scientific research, it has the belief, and they are often right, that the longer you will stay on that site, the greater the probability that you will fall down that rabbit hole. So what is critical ignoring? Critical ignoring is saying, before I invest my limited attention, and attention in 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 an information economy is limited. It's our most precious resource. How are we going to invest our attention intelligently? Before we invest our attention in a site, do a 30-second, 45-second check, read laterally, open up a few tabs, and quickly find out that uh, children's health defense by Robert F. Kennedy, who's a lawyer and has no scientific medical training, is a site that traffics in anti-vax conspiracies. And that way, you have saved yourself a whole lot of time, you've ignored the whole site, and you've preserved your attention for sources that are really worthy of your attention. Let me go to caller Peter in San Francisco. Peter, you're on. Yes, hi. Thanks for doing this. It's very important. Two things. A lot of people, it seems, have trouble differentiating sources. Even smart friends of mine, I'll ask, well, where did you hear that or see that? I got it from the Internet. And, you know, that's like saying, I got it from the telephone. We wouldn't typically do that, but people just don't seem very often to even differentiate where they got something. They can't even remember it. And the second point is that the larger picture is that we don't really have totally free speech in this country. There are libel and slander laws that hold people accountable if they're doing it publicly on a street corner or in particularly in publications or uh, television, for example. Those don't apply to the uh, social media people who, thanks to lobbying and getting the 1996 Communications Decency Act and Section 230, they're treated in terms of accountability as though they're the phone company, which we don't expect and nobody expects to be held accountable for what two people are saying to each other with respect to truthfulness or libel and so on, slander or whatever. And that, I think, makes a huge difference in what is trafficked on the Internet versus what we get in regular publications and on television and so on. There's a a whole accountability question Mm. that I think encourages and enables false stuff to be basically published by the social media while saying we're not responsible and they're legally correct. It's just, you know, if you want to go after somebody, go after the person if you can find them you know, who who said what they said, and we just we just enabled it to be put out. P- Peter, thanks. You know, these descriptions of what we encounter, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Sam Weinberg, is, is just the broader impact that I also often hear from people, which is that, gosh, there's so much information out there, and it's so vastly, uh, you know, oppositional to each other. Um, it's so different in terms of claims, polar opposites in many ways. You've talked about it having this effect called trust compression, and I'm wondering if you could describe that. Well, uh, trust compression actually is a, a, something that that Mike first coined several years ago. Um, it's a it's an extremely important point. In the book, we use the example of uh, I think it's something like. 
Harvey's natural uh, supplements, uh, hawking all kinds of uh, benefits from from uh, kind of homeopathic remedies, and we contrast that with the uh, the Mayo Clinic. And we've used this and watched students say, "Well, you know, this 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 Harvey supplements—they're trying to hawk things." But you know, the Mayo Clinic too—you know—they they just want sick people to get to their hospital because you know they need to uh, to pay the bills. And so, what's compressed there? is this huge distance between a kind of bogus health supplement site and this, the, the Mayo Clinic, which is a bona fide, established, respected, prestigious medical institution. And what is compressed is the distance between their truth value. And so you have this situation on the Internet where people say, you know, you can't trust anything. And that is really, yes. really dangerous. I, I agree with Peter that there's, you know, so much unvetted information on the Internet. But there's a, a philosopher at the University of Connecticut, Michael Lynch, who wrote something very important in The New York Times several years ago. And I think it's true. And I think we don't really understand the depth of his claim. He said, the Internet is the best fact checker that humanity could ever invent at the same time as being the best bias confirmer that humanity could ever invent. And the, 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 the paradox of this is that both of those statements are true. Now, what are we going to do in the face of that? Until the Internet is regulated, yes, it's a dangerous place. But if you know how to use it effectively, it is an extremely powerful place to learn new things and to make better decisions about what to believe as an informed citizen. And what's going to make the difference? What's what's hanging in the balance? The kind of educational interventions. We don't teach this stuff in school. We can't blame young people for not knowing something they haven't been taught. All of us, all of us are speeding along the information highway, and we've never even received the manual that uh, 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 something, uh, a red sign means to stop. Yeah. So how can, how can we expect anything better? And I think that, you know, what, we, what Mike and I have tried to do, we, we, we joke amongst ourselves, we, we tried to create a, like a brief driver's manual, not something that's going to teach you how to change your catalytic converter, but it's going to help you know that when you come to double lines on the Internet, don't cross those double lines. Um, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I just want to take it very quickly, just a step further. So what is the broader concern or impact when you seem to have just a lot of people who feel like, well, I, I just don't believe anything. I can't really believe anything. I just operate in doubt about everything. Oh, boy. Mina, you know, that's the dangerous, that, that, that's exactly, that's, that, that, that's a gourmet meal to an autocrat. That's what every single authoritarian wants. I mean, we saw that with Donald Trump. You can't believe everything's fake news. And so you can't believe anything. Believe me. And this has been part of the toolbox of every autocrat since and before Joseph Goebbels. That, and, and you know, think of, think of Steve Bannon's theme flood the zone, create so much noise that the only person that you can believe is the strong leader. 
And so this, those people who are enemies of democracy precisely want people to be in that position of throwing up their hands. You know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of people think that Soviet-style uh, disinformation, disinformatia, was created to persuade people of a particular view. That's actually not the case. When you go back to Lenin's writings, you see the goal of disinformation, he writes this, the goal of disinformation is not to change people's views, but to create, and I'm going to quote, muddled thinking. Hmm. Why? Because a citizenry with muddled thinking is more easy to control. So that throwing up your hands, you can't believe anything on the internet, is perhaps the biggest threat to democracy that we have today. Well, we just have a minute left, but Governor Newsom did sign a new bill into law that will go into effect next year that requires California schools to add media literacy to their curriculum. One of your studies of kids was cited in the bill's proposal. You know, just tell us in broad strokes what that bill does and whether or not you think it'll be effective, because there has been a lot of criticism around how to do media literacy effectively and whether it truly does work. Well, first of all, the claims about whether media literacy works, we should ask, what's your evidence? Mm -hmm. Uh, In our case, we've done uh, 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 treatment control studies, a large treatment control study in in Lincoln, Nebraska, which we showed that in just in six hours of time, students can nearly double their ability to make thoughtful decisions about what's reliable. So Mm. again, the first question of anybody who says, I have the answer, say, show me your receipts. Um, That's the the first thing. There's an awful lot of claims. Listen, um, we're behind the eight ball. We're playing catch up. Technology has progressed so rapidly and education moves at a tortoise pace. So I am in my heart of hearts, I'm an educator, and so I am obliged to be optimistic. We need we need curriculum material. We need teacher professional development. If this is something that's just slapped on the on the on the on the desk of the librarian for a one-off two-hour uh, filling in the blanks, it's not going to be inf- effective. I mean, think about the average American average American adolescent spends eight hours a day out of school online. So, this is not something that we should teach as a patch on the curriculum. This has to be deeply put into how we teach science, how we teach social studies, how we teach civics, and that will bring about change. Sam Weinberg is professor at Stanford and founder of the Stanford History Education Group. His new book is Verified. Thank you, Sam, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for your questions and comments. Thank you, Mark Nieto, for producing today's segment. Think critically. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.